Hey guys, this is Robert from Limitless Broadcasting. And Sammy. I was getting to you. (laughs) But we wanted to tell you some exciting news. We are going to be at the Indiana Comic Con, March 22nd through the 24th. That's going to be at the Indianapolis or... Indiana Convention Center. In Indianapolis, let's say that. (laughs) So if you are going to the convention, please come over to the Limitless Broadcasting booth Mm -hmm. and say hello. Yeah, I believe it was booth 1710. 1710. Yes, so it's a huge convention. Yeah. One of the... Probably the biggest one I think we've been to. Yeah, this is going to be like Megacon. Yeah, unfortunately, I will not be there in person. Robbie will be there, but he's going to have some uh, fun friends with him. Yes. Including, I believe, from Pixie Dust Twins, Ashley. First con for her. And so if you're there, ask us about Rant Radio because you can win $1,000 from Limitless Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very excited about that. And who doesn't love a good rant? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we will, or I guess I should say, Robbie, we'll see you soon at the Indiana Comic Convention. And what days are you going to be there one more time? Uh, we're going to be there the 22nd through the 24th of March. Mm-hmm. So we'll see you guys there soon. We'll see you there. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, it's Ashley and Sammy from the Pixie Dust Twins podcast. If you love Disney, you should come join the fun on our weekly show. Our podcast is family-friendly and talking about all things Disney. Whether you go to the parks or just love binging Disney+, Plus, we are the podcast for you. So grab your Pixie Dust, think happy thoughts, and join us on your favorite podcasting platform. Check out LimitlessBroadcasting.com and aim for the second star on the right and straight on till you land on the Pixie Dust Twins podcast. Your whole life can change in an instant. About 50 million adults in the United States have chronic pain. And because of a car accident, Robbie is one of them. In their marriage vows, Robbie and Sammy promise to stand by one another and provide strength when needed. And lately, they've been facing some of their biggest challenges. Join them as they share the ups and downs of living with chronic pain. Welcome to the Painful Truth of Living with Pain podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Sammy. And I'm Robert. And you're listening to part two of our five-part series, Inspired by Dope Sick, a look into the family that addicted America. This is part two mm-hmm. of our series with the, the opioid mm-hmm. pandemic. Yes. And today we're talking about how Purdue infiltrated the world of pain through pain advocacy organizations, misleading studies, and misrepresentation of their breakthrough drug, Oxycontin. I know a lot of our listeners are probably on Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. So just to let people know, Oxycontin still gets prescribed today. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Not as it did, but it still gets prescribed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And because of that, remember, we are not offering any sort of actual medical advice. We're not doctors. We're not physicians. No. Definitely check to your doctors, physicians, mm-hmm. lawyers, anything. Yes. We're just telling a story, essentially, an investigation. Yeah. Are you ready to dive in? Yeah, I'm ready for part two. All right. So today what we're going to start with is the opioid shift. And this is kind of the basically the change in attitudes because before the whole Oxycontin push, they really, the medical community was not really prescribing opioids like they do today or like you started seeing in the 90s and the 2000s. Okay. Many trace the seeds, what they call the seeds for change in the attitudes towards opioids to a 1980 letter 
I'm going to emphasize this is a letter, not a study, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was written by Dr. Herschel Jick of Boston University Medical Center and his assistant, Jane Porter. So again, this was a letter, basically a letter to the editor that they submitted, not any sort of formal study. Nothing was conducted. And what was this letter about? The letter was published 15 years before OxyContin was approved by the FDA. And in the single paragraph note, Jick analyzed the hospital files of patients that were given short-term limited doses of opioids in a controlled setting and concluded that less than 1% of these users became addicted to the medication, which kind of makes sense. He's looking at a hospital setting. It's very short-term. They're in a controlled environment, which means giving the medicine and then coming off of the medicine, changing the medicines. It's all very, very well watched. The patients are monitored. Makes sense. Kind of like how I was when I had my surgery. Mm -hmm. They gave me a stronger dose of pain medication. Mm -hmm. And then they took me off of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you didn't become addicted to hydromorphone. No. Yes. The analysis did not address long-term opioid use outside of a hospital. And yet, years after the letter was published, the statistic, the statistic being that he said less than 1% of patients became addicted, this statistic was a mantra that took hold and was repeated over and over again by anyone who was trying to preach the benefits of opioid use. Okay. Seems a bit sketchy. It would actually be cited hundreds of times as proof that opioids were safe for people in pain. Mm -mm -mm. And yet it was not an actual study, just something that the doctor had noticed during his time in the hospital. So, so, so he writes this letter to the editor, to the editor about England Journal of Medicine about uh, hospitals. And then they go the one hospital really one hospital. where he was. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the people that produce Oxycontin take it and run with it. Jick was horrified. The to guy learn, who wrote, wrote the, yes, the letter. The doctor. He was horrified years later when he found out how the letter had been misused. And to quote him, he said, I'm essentially mortified that the letter to the editor was used as an excuse to do what these drug companies did, he told the Associated Press. They used this letter to spread the word that these drugs were not very addictive, basically meaning they were misusing the information he had stated. It was not a study. It was not intended for any sort of representation of how opioids should or shouldn't be used or actual addiction rates. It was just simply something that he had noticed and wrote a very small letter to the editor about. Wow. Yeah. These are the types of tactics that these companies were using. Just, wow. Just as a heads up, and it, it is referenced again in the series that we are, that got us started on here, Dope Sick, they do reference that too, especially in the lawsuit against the misbranding of Oxycontin. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah, yeah, that was kind of the big kickoff of everything. <laughs> When, let me ask you, mm-hmm. for those people listening, mm-hmm. when was the big opioid crisis from when to when? It really started in the 90s and ran through the early 2000s. Okay. Like, Which will track here. Mm-hmm. We would say 2007. It was like, maybe like a little bit later when they started really cracking down, the DEA did on everything. So like 2012. Yeah, closer to that, around when I had graduated. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So to also show you where Purdue was sticking their fingers in to these different areas to help promote the idea of the safety of opioids. In 1984, Richard Sackler, who remember he's kind of the key guy, he's the one who really pushed for this Oxycontin development. He helped organize the International Symposium on Pain Control in Toronto and Purdue sponsored the entire thing. Seems uh, again, a little so bit of a conflict of interest. They sponsored a pain clinic, basically. Yes. And at the symposium, many physicians spoke at the conference and offered testimonials about their experience with MS Cotton. 
because this is before 1984 is before oxycontin came out but ox but morphine the extended morphine ms cotton was out so they were already kind of pushing their agenda even back then and in fact a doctor who spoke at the symposium from austria stated that addiction does not occur in patients requiring morphine for pain control flat out said it doesn't happen if they need it for pain control they won't become addicted Spoiler alert. And the biggest message at the symposium was that addiction only occurs when morphine is misused by people who do not need it. So people who are buying it illegally off the streets, taking it from family members, they are the ones who become addicted. Not, not everybody, everybody else. else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Over the years, Purdue held more than 40 pain management and speaker training conferences at resorts in places like Boca Raton, Florida, and Scottsdale, Arizona. Those are the kind of big places because everybody likes to go there on vacation, right? Scottsdale. Everybody Mm -hmm. likes Scottsdale. Yeah, it's a nice weather there. It's a big popular area for people to go. Mm. And these pain management conferences occurred between 1996 and 2001. So like I said, it was more than 40 conferences or training conferences, whatever you want to refer to it as. And during this time, more than 5,000 physicians, pharmacists, and nurses attended the seminars, and they were recruited and trained for Purdue's National Speaker Bureau. So basically, they were going to learn the word of Purdue and all the benefits of opioids and share it. So they would go back to wherever they worked and share what they had learned at these seminars essentially okay the biggest benefit for them was that all of their expenses were paid to attend all the doctors expenses yeah anyone who was invited to this their expenses were paid so that's physicians pharmacists nurses and they had the money to do that Mm -hmm. they spent a lot of money on this i don't know if i have it in this one or we may be talking about our next episode actually how much money they actually spent on these sort of seminars Okay, I'm that's I'm interested to hear how much they're yeah. actually putting out for that. I believe I have that in our next episode. Okay. And the trained speakers were all made available to give presentations eventually down the line about opioids, including the active ingredient Oxycontin to their colleagues, like I said. So they would do this at medical conferences, hospital presentations, and whatnot. They would basically take what they learned and teach it to others in their community. Gotcha. But what they were learning, a little sketch. So not the best thing to go back and teach other people. I agree. So also during this time, just to kind of show you again how interwoven Purdue was in particular with this whole pain movement, there were a lot of key pain leaders out in the, what do I want to say? Area? Well, there were key pain leaders that were prominent in the the push for the use of opioids and for treating pain. So prominent leaders in the pain community. Yes. Mm -hmm. They were making a big come up because the whole thing was that we were under treating pain and all these patients were out here that were not being taken care of and we need to take care of them. This was a key thing that they kept saying over and over again. And these are some of the top people. One prominent key opinion leader was Dr. Russell Portnoy. In 1986, he co-authored a study that looked at just 38 patients and concluded that long-term use of opioids can be a safe, salutary, and more humane alternative to the options of surgery or no treatment in these patients with what they call intractable non-malignant pain. That basically means it's not cancerous pain. So like you you have chronic pain and they don't always know what's causing it or maybe something did cause it but it wasn't related to cancer essentially what they're saying and then these patients had no history of prior drug abuse so already don't really care for that study from 1986 there's 38 patients that's kind of ridiculous to only look at 38 patients and come to this conclusion plus i'm not sure how he could have come to this particular statement about the long-term use okay Time Magazine actually dubbed Dr. Portnoy as the king of pain as he spread the gospel of opioid treatment. He appeared in industry publications many, many times. So that's how he ended up with that title. Don't know that he probably really should have had that title since he was, again, spreading misinformation. But it is what it is. Yeah. 
And according to legal filings, Portnoy received research support, research support, consulting fees, or honoraria, which I'm not sure what that means, but I'm sure that's just other gifts from drug companies such as Purdue, Janssen, Endo, and Cephalon. Now, all of these drug companies produce their own opioids or own pain relievers, but we're only focusing on Purdue. But I thought it was interesting to include these other makers. And- Do the other people, other companies that make their own pain relievers, mm-hmm. have they ever been in this kind of trouble? Have they ever yes. done anything like uh, that? Janssen, which is Johnson & Johnson, they have their own separate issue, and they actually provided the opium to a lot of these other drug companies that were making opioids. So they have their own thing. So we may have to down the line, look into them too. Johnson and Johnson provided the opium. That was a big thing. Like opium that you would go, that you would be arrested for. Yeah. Well, they grew the plants. Right. But if you, for the medication, if you and I were to grow them plants and use it, we would be arrested for it. Yes. But they're a drug company. That's not the point. I'm let's get back to the show. What is your point then? The point is that, they're getting away with this. Yes. And if we were to do it, we would get arrested. Yes, you are right. That's the that's my point. Yeah, and my point was and they're, the only reason was because they're a drug company. No, I understand. So the rules don't apply. Portnoy was also the director of the American Pain Foundation. This organization was shuttered in 2012 as members of Congress asked questions following an investigation by ProPublica in the Washington Post into its close ties into pharmaceutical manufacturers. The investigation actually found that this foundation received 90% of its $5 million in funding from the drug and medical device industry in 2010. So they were not influenced in quotes by these drug companies but mm, that's a lot of money five million dollars to get 90 percent of that from yeah drug companies and you're not promoting their their drugs any sort of way no no very mm. much so yeah mm, seems fishy so the king of pain seems a bit sketch yeah another leader was dr lynn webster who was the co-founder of life tree clinical research in utah and a senior editor at the Pain Medicine Journal. Webster. He was on the documentary. Both of these, I believe, are referenced. Right. Both of these physicians. I I remember the the clinic's name. Yeah, because the the stupid, I'm sorry, the stupid name of the Life Tree Clinical, whatever, stupid. Webster served on the advisory board, actually, at Purdue Pharma and created and promoted what they called the opioid risk tool, which was supposed to help doctors screen their patients' risk of becoming addicted. Pretty sure it was bullshit. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. He also promoted the concept of pseudo addiction in which some patients exhibiting certain signs of addiction should be treated with more pain medication. Now, let me ask you, would that kind of stuff fly today no because pseudo addiction there's no such thing i mean people were smart back then people mm-hmm. had doctor degrees and whatever the fuck mm-hmm. i mean how this do you is think, not that long ago that we're talking about right how do you think they got it pushed through because with, they would use mm-hmm. terms like this so you say okay, you're a legitimate pain patient and you're saying i'm still in pain and i'm on this medication well, you're not really addicted to the medicine. We'll just increase your dose. It's fake addiction. It's pseudo addiction. Addiction is addiction is addiction. You can call it what you want, but it's still the same thing. You are physically addicted, maybe mentally addicted, whatever it is, there's no such thing as pseudo addiction. You can't be like fake addicted to an opioid. And, And people bought that. Yes, because they were publishing these and making it appear in these journals that supposedly had a good reputation and were never trying to help people. It's basically like saying, you coming out and saying the sky is red, the sky is red, the sky is red, and eventually people start believing the sky is red. Mm -hmm. But it's never true. I gotcha. Mm -hmm. In 2013 and 14, Webster was president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, which also has come under fire for its financial ties to the pharmaceutical industry. 2013 and 14. So not too long ago. That's not very long ago at all. Mm-hmm. 
you would you always think that this is like way in the past Mm -hmm. but it really wasn't that's not long ago at all stuff was not the big crackdown on it was like we said a lot more recent too but it's really started in the 90s when all of this kind of started going down it's crazy and finally about webster in march 2017 webster produced a documentary that was shown on public television stations called the painful truth (laughs) i thought that was funny (laughs) like our podcast depicting officials as having overreacted to the opioid epidemic and arguing that people in pain are being denied the medications that they need Hmm. what webster failed to mention was that pharmaceutical companies were donating money to help produce the documentary really but don't worry when stat news asked webster why his financial ties were not disclosed to viewers he said people can research it online because that's what i do every time i watch something now i do look into it when i was looking at stuff for this i would kind of glance up at my articles i was reading and see did someone funny get their hands involved in this you know and how would you be able to tell somebody funny got in there? So what I was looking at, not necessarily for documentaries, but I would look up article, not articles, but research journals and then articles posted in there that about pain relief, particular, I was looking like around the 90s. Okay. But I would look and see who helped publish it, who did the study. And then I would run into things like Purdue helped give us money for this. And then it just seemed fishy. So they have to tell that. Purdue helped us give yeah, money. Yeah, but you, the problem is that news articles or when it's republished, you tend to gloss over it. You know, you're doing the highlights. This is what they found. And this is the bulk of the study. They looked at patients and determined this, this, and this. But they don't always go back and say, but it looks like Purdue actually paid for it. Not always referenced. So when you're seeing this republished in medical journals or in just everyday news, because the news is not going to reference all of that. You don't realize who all's got their fingers in it. Or you'll see like Dr. Webster or Dr. Portnoy's name on it and not realize that maybe they didn't directly get the funding from Purdue because their pain association conducted the study, but the pain association gets money from Purdue. So, you know, it's like a whole So it kind of gets funneled through them. Yeah, still kind of so it's sketch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Forget my words for one big circle jerk. Oh, accurate. Mm-hmm. Finally, another key opinion leader was Dr. June Dahl, who was a professor of pharmacology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who helped influence the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations. Now, this is this is pretty bad when it comes to fueling the fire that was the opioid epidemic. So what, is, what does that mean? She had concluded around 1996 that physicians were not using pain medications appropriately. So she approached the commission about creating standards for pain management and using those standards to accreditate healthcare facilities. After some work and persuasion, the commission approved the standards in 99, using them to score facilities starting in June 2001. So what that means is that now as a hospital, as a healthcare provider, you're getting graded on, are you managing patients' pain? Okay. Patients are getting surveys, being asked these questions about it. And if they're not satisfied with their pain relief, you get less funding. It starts to look negatively on you. It's published online. You don't have great reviews. So what do they do? Oh, you have a headache. Well, I'm going to make sure I give you the strongest thing I can. You know, here's some oxycotton. Here's some oxycodone. Here's some hydrocodone. Make your headache go away so you give me a good rating. Right, right. It encouraged something that should not have been encouraged. Okay, in so, the long that's, run. so that's where that started. Yes. Dahl had said that she received funding from various charitable organizations, including the Susan G. Komen Foundation. We were also blessed that Purdue Pharma gave us a significant amount of money to keep things operational here, she said. Again, there's Purdue popping up for something related to pain relief. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported that the university's pain and policy studies group received $2.5 million from Purdue and several other opioid makers between 1999 and 2010. Again, seems like a conflict of interest there when they're basically promoting the use of opioids. Yeah. Yeah. 
According to the Government Accountability Office, which I didn't even know was a thing until I was looking into this. Is that still around today? Yes, that's this is a thing. Purdue had an arrangement with the Joint Commission in which it was one of only two companies that funded the commission's pain management educational programs and was the only drug company allowed to distribute certain educational materials and a book about pain management. Really? That's, I don't know why you're allowed to make sketch. those sort of deals. Yeah. Who, would, who in their right man, mind would make that kind of deal? I, it seems terrible to allow that, regardless of whether it's for pain management or anything, to allow one drunk company the ability to do this. Yeah, but who in their right mind would be like, you know what? That sounds like a fair deal. Exactly. I don't know. Depending on it, they must have been giving so much money that people are just like, okay. Obviously, that's what's basically implied. This arrangement, the GAO, GAO said, may have facilitated Purdue's access to hospitals to promote OxyContin. You think? Don't you think that that's exactly what Absolutely. happened? Absolutely. I guess they don't want to outrage say, but don't you think that's exactly what happened? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. According to letters written by U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill, the Federation of State Medical Boards promoted a policy calling for punishment of physicians for undertreatment of pain. This is what I was just referencing. While assuring doctors they would not face disciplinary action for over prescribing narcotics. Okay. This is exactly what I was saying. So now they're in trouble if they're not treating your brain. They're not in trouble if they're over treating it. So what are they going to do? So in the movie, the the guy walks in, he's like, oh, I have this knee injury. And the guy whips out his prescription book and he's mm-hmm. like, have you ever had Oxycontin? Mm-hmm. And he's going to tighten, start him off at the 10 milligram. Yeah. And then he start ar- arguing, oh, I usually start people off on the 30 milligram. Mm-hmm. He was a junkie, but. Mm-hmm. But that's what happened. But the doctor's thing. not going to argue because he doesn't want to get in trouble. Right. Not treating the pain. Right. And the book that was funded by Purdue actually resulted in $280,000 going to the Federation. $280,000? That's it? I I, maybe the book wasn't popular. I don't know. And I'm not sure how long it was available. I don't really know that much about the book itself. So that doesn't seem like a very popular book, especially for how much money these guys were printing. Yeah, but. Pretty probably doesn't care, but I don't know if for that money too, it probably was a percentage of whatever they sold. So who knows how much they agreed on that could have been 1%. That could have been 5%. We don't really know. Okay. Additionally, lawsuits allege that the pharmaceutical manufacturers worked through a group called the pain care forum, which also, what did it do? It promoted opioids. So this one was co-founded by Purdue Pharma's Washington lobbyist, and the forum consisted of manufacturer representatives, doctors, and professional organizations that received substantial funding from drug makers, including the American Academy of Pain Management, the American Pain Society, and the American Society of Pain Educators. So this forum was made up of several different organizations. So these different organizations receive funding from drug makers, like I've been telling you all along. And the pain forum, according to the center's investigation, gave more than $140 million to political campaigns, dwarfing the $4 million that was spent by groups that advocated restricting pain killers. So you had the pain forum who was saying opioids are good. We should be lobbying to give this medicine to patients. They need it. And then you had another group that was saying, I don't think this is the best idea for how we should be treating patients. But when you look at $140 million that they spent towards this political agenda versus the $4 million, it's laughable. Absolutely. So there's no way that those other people are going to get their voices heard. Very much so. Because we all know how politics plays. See, that's the that's, biggest wallet. That's the biggest. That's the big number I'm thinking they should have spent. Mm-hmm. $140 million. Mm-hmm. There's also the American Pain Society led a campaign to promote the concept of pain as the fifth vital sign, which resulted in hospitals across the U.S. introducing the smiley face pain scales into consulting rooms in the 2000s and requiring doctors to prioritize pain treatment. So I think everyone's seen the little doofy smiley face 
that point to the the one on the chart that matches how you feel they introduced this that's still used today yes unfortunately so the american pain society led the campaign to promote it the society even copyrighted the phrase pain the fifth vital sign and they took in nearly one million dollars from the leading opioid makers over the five over five years to 2017 so this is 2012 to 2017 and that of course included purdue pharma hmm, here we go again popping up all over again and way back in 1996 the society ins- issued an influential statement saying that opioids were safe and effective for the treatment of chronic pain and that the risk of addiction was low a claim that has obviously since been discredited. However, it's interesting to note that the co-author of the statement and chair of the committee that agreed to it was a doctor, David Haddix, who is a paid speaker for Purdue Pharma. And Haddix went on to become the company's vice president of health policy and a leading advocate for prescribing oxycontin. So you look back at the 90s and early 2000s, mid 2000s, even not that long ago, as we're referencing some things that were still happening. Like the pain 2015, 16, 17, yes. And you see that these pain advocacy groups, which should be on your side, are not. They have a big old hand with a big old wallet right and sticking their fingers in, messing with all this stuff. So you can't really take what they say at face value, which is really unfortunate because these groups could really probably do a lot for legitimate pain patients, and it doesn't seem like they are. Yeah. At all. Absolutely. So we're going to move on now to the term breakthrough pain. Okay. So we've heard this a lot, right? Right. Everybody knows this term. It really is popularized. Everyone's heard it. And you would think it's been around forever, right? Right. No. The term was popularized by Portnoy, the king of pain. He's back again. And Hagen in a study published in 1990. That wasn't that long ago. No. Well, no. Not really. No. They described breakthrough pain as a transitory exacerbation of pain to greater than moderate intensity, which occurs on a beeline of pain of moderate intensity or less in a patient receiving receiving chronic opioid therapy. Basically, that just means you're taking an opioid, you've been on it, and you still have pain flare-ups throughout the day. That's really what it's saying. Enough that it bothers you. Okay. That's what this is saying. Okay. In a very fancy way, directly from the study. Okay. But again, is that true? Is it accurate? You really have to start questioning it because 1990, this is all right around when Oxycontin was starting to be looked into. They were starting to do their research to produce it. They were discussing it. And this came out. And we all know that the king of pain was getting money from Purdue. Keep that in the back of your mind. I found another study called, uh, it was actually a study review called The Breakthrough Pain and Chronic Non-Cancer Pain, Fact, Fiction, or Abuse. So this is a literature review. So what they do for this is they go back and they find studies that meet their qualifications in looking at the idea of breakthrough pain, breakthrough pain in particular in patients who do not have cancer and are on chronic op- opioid therapy. But this is, they didn't start do a new study. They looked at all these studies that had already been out there. Okay. And then compiled the data, essentially, is what they did, and they reviewed it. Okay. So what they found was that literature for breakthrough pain and chronic non-cancer pain patients has been poorly defined and continues to be debated even to this day. In reality, chronic non-cancer pain patients request medication for breakthrough pain even if they are on medication that's dosed every six hours, or you can think of that as four times a day. So these are patients who are already on medicine that they're taking more often. They still complain of having pain in between. Now, some of this is, and we kind of touched base on this before, but expectations that need to be set for pain patients, because unfortunately you can't be at a zero. That's not going to be a thing for you. 
So some of that may be in patients not being educated on what to really expect when they take their pain medicine. I don't know. I don't think they really reference that. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. And the researchers found that patients requested doses to help them with the breakthrough pain numerous times instead of the two episodes that Portnoy described in his his um, statement before about breakthrough pain. So he would imply that it wouldn't happen very often. They would have two episodes of needing it while they're on these Oxycontin, Memes cotton, probably mostly just long-term opioid use. They would say that patients would have two episodes on average. But what they found during their research and looking at all of these other studies was that these pain patients were frequently complaining that they were having pain throughout the day. Okay, so they're your pain patient. Mm-hmm. You're having pain through the day. What do what do these pain things do? Well, what do they do? Basically, they also found functional status, which is basically how you're able to go throughout your day. Okay, generally does not improve in these patients, and they end up becoming more dependent. And the long acting drugs end up being less effective with increasing doses. So the patients tended to prefer the short acting opioids over the long acting ones because they could take it more often. But essentially what they found in doing all of these reviews was that the opioids long-term are probably not really doing anything for you. Okay. At the end of the day. Okay. And I believe I have some more references to that because you're kind of asking about it towards the end of this. Okay. So keep that in the back of your head if I don't answer. All right. Now we're getting into it. You ready? Okay. Ready to talk about Oxycontin, the billion dollar drug. So that's all the stuff leading up to actual Oxycontin being distributed. Now we're going to get into the bulk of this. And the main thing that everybody's talking about, which is the drug itself, Oxycontin. We're going to look at how they launched it and how it became a billion dollar drug. Now, again, next episode, we're going to get more into the sales force and how they helped to make it a billion dollar drug as well. But this is going to be more in how they promoted the drug itself and who it should be prescribed to. My my question to you is mm-hmm. who prescribed, who distributes Oxycontin today? And how do they do that? So Purdue, I believe that's a good question because I have to double check that. But I know that Purdue Pharma itself, the Sacklers are not, I think, technically involved in there anymore. I think they had to give it up. Really? But Oxycontin is still being produced. So not prescribed as often. If the Sacklers had to give up the company, Mm -hmm. what do they do? The Sacklers, I don't know, but I said we would get into that later. Okay. You asked me this last time too, and I told you I didn't know, and I still don't know because I'm not that far. <laughs> and in all these put questions. Together. Yes, all you these asked. Questions. We're off the topic. The topic right now is oxycontin. Is oxycontin. So we're going to do that. So the drug maker Purdue Pharma launched oxycontin two decades ago with a bold marketing claim: one dose relieves pain for 12 hours, more than twice as long as generic medications. Patients would no longer have to wake up in the middle of the night to take their pills, Purdue told doctors. One Oxycontin tablet in the morning and one before bed would provide smooth and sustained pain control all day and all night. Not true. It's total bullshit. It's total bullshit. The drug was officially approved on December 28, 1995. So looking a little more into the strategy behind Oxycontin, Remember, I told you 1990 is a key year. In 1990, a memo from Purdue scientist and vice president for clinical research, Bob Keiko, I think it's Keiko, but I'm probably butchering his name. He wrote this memo to Richard Sackler stating that MS cotton, which was their big drug at the time, remember, may eventually face such serious generic competition that other controlled release opioids must be considered. So they were not making Oxycontin because they're like, oh, there's a hole in the market. They were like, oh, crap. Our patent's going to expire on MS cotton. That's our big money maker. We need to do something else. So that's why they mm-hmm. did Oxycontin. 
Yes. Bob suggested oxycodone because it was less likely to have generic competition. So I'm assuming they did their research into this about the availability of it at that time. Now, Richard's cousin, Kathy, actually said, and I, after all this nonsense, I don't know why you try and argue this point, but Kathy actually claimed that she had brought up the idea of oxycodone or oxycodone to Richard using that drug first. But research is showing that Bob may have brought up first. I don't know. I don't think it really matters. Kathy sucks, too, at the end of the day. This is semantics, people. Yeah. At the end of the day, they all suck. So we're going to jump back in time just a little bit to 1984, because at that time, Richard hired Michael Friedman as his new head of marketing. This is important because Michael Friedman was very, very much involved in Oxycontin and the marketing of it. So 10 years later in 94, Michael sent a memo marked very confidential. This is just how they did things at Purdue Pharma, which you'll learn if you watch any documentaries or the Dope Six series or anything about them. This memo went to Richard, Mortimer, and Raymond. He said, we believe that the FDA will restrict our initial launch of Oxycontin to the cancer pain market. This is important because 4 million prescriptions were filled at that time for cancer pain per year but there was a much bigger market out there for back pain neck pain arthritis and fibromyalgia so their secret plan was to expand the use of oxycontin beyond cancer patients to chronic non-malignant pain again non-malignant means non-cancerous so the everyday person who does not have cancer and is in pain he said it was imperative that we establish literature to suggest Oxycontin for the broadest range of use. 94, hmm, seems kind of fishy, all these pain conferences coming out, educating people on the benefits of opioids, long-term use, seems all kind of tied in together, right? Right. Purdue also planned to market Oxycontin against MS cotton. This is key, too, because MS Cotton was their big moneymaker, but the patent was running out. So what are they going to do? They're going to get all these people that are on MS Cotton or prescribing MS Cotton and tell them you need to switch to OxyContin. That's our new thing. It's better. (sighs) Super sketch. Okay. So referencing that memo again, Michael said, while we may wish to see more of this product sold for cancer pain, it would be extremely dangerous at this early stage in the life of the product to tamper with its personality. So that's basically how it's seen to make physicians think the drug is stronger or equal to morphine. So their whole thing was they had a perception out there, Oxycontin, that it was not as strong or as potent as morphine. Okay, so morphine is stronger. They did not want to correct these thoughts by the perception of physicians' general public. However, it's important to note that oxycodone is twice as potent as morphine. Gotcha. The opposite. So in producing Oxycontin and trying to get doctors on board, Purdue argued that the coding would abbreviate, basically eliminate the risk of addiction because there were no peaks or troughs in the dosing. Peaks or valleys. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have that. If you look at a, a treatment with medication, this is common for all medications. So it's not just opioids or pain relievers, but you'll see the peaks and valleys like you just said where it gets absorbed and it's doing its thing it's really working and then it kind of starts to wear off so then you might start to feel pain as it's wearing off so they were claiming it didn't have those peaks and valleys like regular release oxycodone would so like the generic version that's out the shorter acting version that you have to take more often throughout the day okay but that was a lie In fact, in the package insert, because of all this bullshit that Purdue was doing, they got the statement of, this is an exact quote from the the package insert. It says, delayed absorption as provided by Oxycontin tablets is believed, believed to reduce the abuse liability of the drug. So they're saying that the way that the drug is released in the system, the long-acting cotton system that they use in MS cotton, is believed to reduce the abuse potential of the medicine. Not that it is. It's believed. And they got this shit in the package insert. 
Okay. How the fuck do you get something in a package insert for a medication that says, we think this is what it does? It's insane. It's literally insane. Keep in mind that the FDA rep that was working with them on creating the package insert to get the drug approved was named Curtis Wright. And he left his job at the FDA, worked for a small pharmaceutical firm for, I believe, about a year, and then was hired at Purdue Pharma, where he was making $400,000. What a bump in pay that was. Mm -hmm. From his salary at the FDA. But everybody involved says that's just a coincidence. They didn't plan that. If he was going to come to Purdue, why did he work at the other drug company at first? Seriously, dude, like because they were trying to make it look less fishy. That's exactly what they were doing. So they he worked there for a year and then and then he left them to go work for Purdue because he was clearly not planning to stay at this other pharmaceutical company. He just got a job where he could to ride it out until they would hire him on. Gotcha. And I'm sure he was getting some sort of other money from them because the whole thing is just super, super, super sketchy. Would you ever work for a drug company? I'm sure not they hire something like this. I'm sure they hire pharmacists. They do, but I don't not something like this. It would have to be something I actually thought was helpful. But either way, their job is to sell. They're selling a product at the right. end of the day. It may help you, it may not, but they're still selling a product. But I, I think So the ethics of all that is always a little gray. But if they hired you on, I don't think you're gonna be selling, you're gonna do something with Yeah, but you still would be in, involved in helping make documentation or presentations or you know absolutely because they need to Mm -hmm. sell that's how they make money yeah so purdue spent 207 million dollars on the launch of oxycontin and doubled its sales force to 600 wow for the just to to launch the drug because that's how much money and effort they're putting into it because they believe they could make a lot of money from it Wow. Mm -hmm. And sales reps pitch the drug to family doctors and general practitioners to treat common conditions like backaches and knee pain. And their hook was the convenience of the twice a day dosing. Again, versus some of the other drugs you have to take more often to have them work. So they were like, oh, this is only twice a day. This is great for your patients. Except it's going to get them addicted and they may die of drug overdoses later, but it's okay. So let's look at the 12, what I'm calling the 12 hour lie. Their biggest thing with the drug. Oxycontin's stunning success masked a fundamental problem. The drug does not wear off after 12 hours. It wears off after just a few hours in many people, according to a Los Angeles Times investigation. When you say a few hours, I'm- We're talking maybe eight, maybe less. Okay. I think eight was a standard number I saw in a lot of places, but so it would get you through a day. Well, an eight-hour day. It's twenty-four hours in a day. So I know, but my pain medication, I, it says take every eight hours. Mm-hmm. So it's the same what thing? Yes, same idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. But they were saying you did not need to take it that right, often. Right. Keeping in mind that oxycontin is a chemical cousin of heroin. So when it doesn't last, patients start to experience excruciating symptoms of withdrawal, including an intense craving for the drug. So that's a big difference there too. It's not like you take ibuprofen and you're just like, I feel like I'm gonna die because I haven't taken my next dose. You might be in pain, obviously, which is uncomfortable, but it's not the same thing as craving the drug. Right. The Times investigation looked at thousands of pages of confidential Purdue documents and other records. And they found that Purdue knew about this problem for decades. Even before oxycotton went on the market, clinical trials showed that many patients were not getting 12 hours of relief. And since the drug's debut in 96, the company has been confronted with additional evidence, including complaints from doctors and reports from its own sales reps in independent research that wow. basically says this is not true. The drug does not last that long. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Super crazy. So I was curious about some of these investigations into how long the drug actually lasts. The first patients who actually used OxyContin were women who were recuperating from abdominal and gynecological surgery at two hospitals in Puerto Rico in 1989. Okay. The clinical study 
designed and overseen by Purdue scientists because this was how they were going to help get it on the market. Mm -hmm. And it was paid for by the company. 90 women were given a single dose of the drug while other patients were giving short acting painkillers or placebos. None of the women were regular uses of pain, regular users of painkillers, so they were more susceptible to the effects of the narcotics. More than a third of the women given Oxycontin started to complain about pain within the first eight hours, and about half of them required more medicine before the 12-hour mark, according to an FDA analysis of the study. But the study stated that Oxycontin was safe and relieved pain and lasted longer than the short-acting painkillers. That was kind of their go-to thing. Okay. To obtain the FDA approval, Purdue had to demonstrate that Oxycontin was safe and effective as other pain medicine on the market. And under the agency guidelines for establishing the duration, the company had to show that Oxycontin lasted 12 hours for at least half of the patients, which technically, based on what I just said, about half of them asked for medication before the 12 hour mark, but half of them didn't. So Purdue per submitted the Puerto Rico study which basically showed that half the patients got the 12 hour pain relief, but not asking for it and getting the pain relief. I feel like those are two different things. Yeah, I think so too. Because they may not have asked for it because they didn't want to take too much medicine. Maybe they didn't feel comfortable with it. Let me ask you why, if you're a woman or anything, why would you sign up for a study like this? Like a pain the study? The medicine and treatment is usually free if you sign up. Okay, but and you never know what you're getting into you do not and that is the caveat of signing up for something like this but the idea is you get free treatment and especially maybe in puerto rico that was a big deal for them at the time i don't know but a study like this could really fuck you up it could especially if you're getting the placebo you're getting no pain relievers right it probably it's, really sucked for them exactly so yeah. you're 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 taking this pill and you're like oh Mm -hmm. I think I'm getting pain medication, but I'm really not. So mm -hmm. I'm in pain already. Yeah. All day, every day. But that's, you know, the, the deal of the, the study when you sign up. I know, right? <sighs> it's crazy. Shaking my head. Mm-hmm. So Purdue moved along on two paths. They seeked patents for its new drug, and they continued running additional clinical trials to secure their FDA approval. And in 1992, a submission to the patent office, the company portrayed Oxycontin as a medical breakthrough that controlled pain for 12 hours in approximately 90% of patients. I don't know where they got that number from because the study they submitted for approval didn't show that. Do you think they did another study? They manipulated some sort of data, obviously. Okay. They applied for a separate patent a few years later and said that once a person was a regular user of Oxycontin, it provides pain relief in said patient for at least 12 hours after administration. Again, this is just manipulating data that they, they gathered throughout the years. Okay. So that's all they were doing. So Purdue's researchers had conducted at least half a, set, half a dozen clinical trials according to the FDA's application um, by the company. And in study after study, many patients given Oxycontin every 12 hours would ask for more medicine before the next scheduled dose. For example, in one study of 164 cancer patients, one third of those given Oxycontin dropped out because they found the treatment to be ineffective, according to FDA analysis. Researchers then changed the rules of the study to allow patients to take supplemental painkillers known as rescue medication in between the 12 hour doses so wait a minute so you're on oxycontin mm -hmm. but you're taking other yeah narcotics but you're still only taking oxycontin twice a day right to so help with your pain no it must work because so you're only taking it twice a day so aren't you taking more medication you are because you're taking rescue medicines for your breakthrough pain that the, so, but the are king you taking, of pain so uh, nicely told us about in his study. Are you taking more Oxycontin or are you nope. taking like Percocet or something? It, probably something like that, yes. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't research into what the supplemental pain relievers were, but it could have been ibuprofen. It could have been, yeah, it could have been Oxycodone itself. It could have been something else. I'm assuming it's a higher dose than ibuprofen. In another study of 87 cancer patients, rescue was used frequently in most of the patients and 95% resorted to it at some point during the study. Mm -hmm. So they changed the rules, they oh, changed they the did. rules over and over again. And a Tennessee pain specialist whom Purdue selected to field test the drug in 1995 as part of the FDA approval process 
eventually moved eight of 15 chronic pain patients to an eight hour dosing schedule because they were not getting adequate relief, taking it twice a day. Mm, Purdue did not like this. The situation concerns me as Oxycontin has been developed for a 12 hour dosing, said Dr. Robert Reeder when he wrote to the Memphis physician and Dr. Robert Reeder, Dr. Robert Reeder worked for Purdue. So he was referencing the fact that he had changed the dosing schedule of the medicine. And he said, I request that you not use an every eight hour dosing regimen. So this doctor was like, well, it really only lasts eight hours. I'm going to change my patients to that. And they said, no, don't he do that. He said he, they, Purdue the said, don't do that. Yeah. Purdue okay. said, stop doing that. Cause that's not the way that it's supposed to be dosed. But don't you think he just said, take one every eight hours? I don't know what exactly happened, but he was told to stop doing it. Wow. Mm-hmm. And he didn't put up a fuss. Mm, I don't know exactly what happened because I didn't do a lot of research into it. Scientists affiliated with the Oklahoma University College of Medicine found in 2002 that nearly 87% of those prescribed Oxycontin at a school pain clinic were taking it more frequently than every 12 hours. The reason researchers wrote was perceived end of dose failure. So it wasn't lasting. That's basically what it is. It wasn't working like it was supposed to. And a separate study underwritten by Purdue competitor, Janssen, remember I said is Johnson & Johnson, mm-hmm. reached a similar conclusion. Researchers surveyed chronic pain patients treated with Oxycontin and reported that less than 2% said the drug lasted 12 hours and nearly 85% said it wore off before eight, according to a 2003 journal article. There have been randomized double-blind studies comparing Oxycontin given every 12 hours with immediate release Oxycodone given four times a day, and it showed comparable efficacy, so that means they work about the same, and safety for use with chronic back pain and cancer-related pain. So what that study found, or these some of these studies have found, is that there's no difference between giving the long-acting Oxycontin and the shorter-acting version as far as how well it works. And let's see, there were also some randomized double-blind studies that compared Oxycontin with the MS cotton or what they call controlled release morphine for cancer pain and found the same thing, that it didn't work any better, even though they said it was a breakthrough drug. There really was no difference for these patients. The FDA's medical review officer, when evaluating the efficacy of Oxycontin in Purdue's 1995 new drug application, concluded that Oxycontin had not been shown to have significant advantage over conventional immediate release Oxycodone taken four times a day, other than the reduction in dosing frequency. And the medical letter on drugs and therapeutics concluded officially in 2001 that Oxycodone offered no advantage over appropriate doses of other opioids. So there you go. It said it was a medical breakthrough, remember? It's going to change the course of history with pain relief. But there was really no difference. I can see that mm-hmm. having you're on this medication, you have to take other medications mm-hmm. because your pain is so strong. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know, understand why people just didn't stop taking this drug. Exactly. And I mean, I understand you have to take pain, pain medications, but why didn't you switch to a different one mm-hmm. that actually worked? I agree. I agree. So going back to the LA Times investigation, when they were looking at the internal Purdue documents, they looked over three decades worth of documents from the company. And that started from the conception of Oxycontin in the mid 1980s to 2011, and included emails, memos, meeting minutes, sales reports, sworn testimonies. So what they found was that when many doctors began prescribing Oxycontin at shorter intervals in the late 1990s, Purdue executive executives mobilized hundreds of sales reps to refocus the physicians to the 12 hour dosing. Anything shorter needs to be nipped in the bud. Now one manager told her staff, Purdue just told doctors to prescribe stronger doses, not more frequent ones. And when the patients complain, that Oxycontin doesn't last 12 hours. They're basically saying ignore the patients when they're saying it's not lasting, just give them a higher dose. That's how you solve the problem. Would that solve the problem? No, you just give them a higher dose that still doesn't last past the interval, the, the eight-hour interval maybe, and now you're getting them more and more addicted to this medication. Okay. Uh, research shows that the more potent the dose of an opioid such as Oxycontin, the greater possibility of overdose and death. So not the best thing to be telling patients. 
And more than half of long-term Oxycontin users are on doses that public health officials consider dangerously high, according to analysis of the nationwide prescription data conducted for the Times. Remember, we saw this in some of the documentaries and things. These patients were taking like 25 pills, 30 pills. It was insane how many pills a day. A guy was taking like 200 pills. I don't remember. He said it took him 10 or 15 minutes to take his dose of medicine. Yeah. That guy should have literally been dead. And it took, he did it multiple times a day. Yes. And he was a former heroin user, which is probably the only reason he didn't die every time he took his medicine for the Oxycontin. The company, however, has held fast to the claim of 12-hour relief in part to protect its revenue. Oxycontin's market dominance and its high price, up to hundreds of dollars per bottle, hinge on the 12-hour duration. Otherwise, it offers little advantage over less expensive pain relievers. So that's why the Mm 12-hour, if it was any less, they wouldn't make the money they're Mm -hmm. wanting to make. Yep. And to go back to what you were asking before about using opioids and switching drugs, right? Mm -hmm. I asked about that. So although the science and consensus for the use of opioids in treatment of acute pain or a pain associated with cancer are robust, meaning there's a lot of data saying that, yes, this makes sense for these patients. There is a lot of controversy still in medicine about using opioids for chronic non-cancer related pain, where the risks and benefits are much less clear. So prospective randomized controlled trials lasting at least four weeks evaluated the use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain and showed statistically significant but small to modest improvement in pain relief with no consistent improvement in physical functioning. Remember, physical functioning is being able basically to get up and do things. Function and that's in a your life. big thing. As we've talked about so many times on the show, if you have pain relief, but you're like comatose and you're stuck in bed and can't do anything, then what's the point? Right? Absolutely. You always want to go out and do things. You want to be out in the world. You want to be independent. Yes, ex- exactly. Independent. A recent review of the use of opioids in chronic back pain concluded that opioids may be efficacious, so they work for a short-term pain relief, but longer-term efficacy, which is basically more than 16 weeks, is unclear. That doesn't bode well if they're not able to determine how well it actually works. So that's even till today. Yes. mm -hmm. This is more recent information that I found. And the long-term use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain the proven analgesic efficacy so that's how well it works for pain relief must be weighed against the following potential problems and risks so all of these come with any opioid so there's well-known side effects like what they call respiratory depression which is when you stop breathing or you're breathing slow so much that you know you still have the potential to die sedation so you're overly tired you can't get out of bed like we were just saying you can't function constipation we've definitely talked about that on the show it's terrible for our patients wait a minute let's back up on that that's saying you get that because you're over this is just known side effects for opioid use okay if you're on it long term and nausea that can come with it plus with long-term use there's inconsistent improvement in functioning which we just talked about a million times there can be opioid what they call opioid induced hyperalgesia that is and i think i've talked to you about this You can technically do this with other pain relievers too, but if you take something too many days in a row or too often, what you can actually do is kind of make a rebound effect. So if I'm like, oh, I have a headache and I'm taking ibuprofen every day for four days, five days, I can actually make it worse. It's like a rebound effect. So that's something else they found with opioids. Okay. Plus there can be adverse hormonal and immune effects with long-term use. I don't know exactly what all that involves, to be honest with you, but I think that's interesting. doesn't bode well for people Mm -mm. taking pain. Plus, there's a high incidence of prescription and opioid abuse behaviors and an ill-defined and unclarified risk of addiction, which we've talked about too. So all of that is just basically saying that when Oxycontin came on the market, when it was being presented, it was this breakthrough drug that was going to help all of these chronic pain sufferers in the world. But it was bullshit. Let me ask you, do you think it helped anyone? I'm sure it has helped some people. And in particular, again, you have to look at cancer patients, those who are really suffering. This sort of medication is good for them. 
Now, is it every 12 hours good for them or every eight hours? I think that's a question, obviously, that you'd have to have with your doctor, but it it's there to help them out. But if you're suffering from fibromyalgia, something like you, a car accident pain, I would not recommend it, even though they implied that this is the way to go. This is how you get your life back. It's not safe. Right. It doesn't have the data behind it. It's bullshit. They bought into these pain groups. They bought into studies. They manipulated the data. They didn't present a true picture of what the drug is actually like. Right. So in the everyday market, which is what they were trying to go after, no. And they went after the everyday market outside of cancer patients because of the money, because they wanted to make as much money as they could. And I think that's what they did. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I even saw when I was reading about it, it's almost implied that the numbers you see about how many pain patients are out in the world, it's not a true picture of it. They implied there were many more than there probably actually are for chronic pain sufferers. And that sucks too, because it is a real thing. Real people do suffer from chronic pain and chronic injuries and shit like this just muddies the waters and makes it harder for everybody. Absolutely. So, yeah. So what do we have to look forward to the next? I'm assuming you were done. Yes, that was it for our Oxycontin presentation today. What do we have for the next episode? On our next episode, we're going to take a closer look into the sales tactics utilized by Purdue Pharma to make it a billion dollar drug. So we'll look at the sales force they employed, who they went after, although I referenced some of that today, how much money they spent on it. And besides these big seminars, what else did they do to make you think of Oxycontin when you were looking for pain relief? Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. This was a very cool episode. Before you guys go, make sure you check out LimitlessBroadcasting.com. Yep. Definitely subscribe to our social medias. Mm -hmm. And stay tuned for more more Painful Truth and Dope Six episodes. Yeah. So until next time. Have a good day, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Painful Truth of Living with Chronic Pain with Robbie and Sammy. Make sure you like, follow, and subscribe to the Limitless Podcast Network's own channel, Instagram, and all things social media. And we'll see you all real soon.